As the UAW kicks off the first day of a historic and unusual strike, the union is holding a rally in Detroit. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders will be speaking. It's Friday, September 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on the auto workers strike. UAW members walked off the job at three factories. Also ahead, in addition to the physical obstacles in getting help to survivors of Morocco's earthquake, there are also problems with government dysfunction. And the Bay State braces for a brush with Hurricane Lee. We feel we're prepared across the Commonwealth. We certainly hope, uh, hope for the best, but we always have to prepare for the worst. We'll have the latest forecast. The Red Sox are in Toronto tonight to take on the Blue Jays. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden is addressing the historic strike by the United Auto Workers Union against Ford, General Motors and Stellantis. He's urging the companies to share more of the wealth. Record corporate profits, which they have, should be shared by record contracts for the UAW. The head of the UAW says he agrees with Biden on that point, but in a statement today, Sean Fain disputed the president's assertion that negotiations had broken down. Fain says UAW members are still working to secure higher pay and stronger protections. We are the union! We are the union! Evident in the 13,000 people picketing outside three Michigan plants, the UAW is threatening to expand its strike, though, against Detroit's big three automakers if there's still no agreement. President Biden will host the president of Ukraine at the White House on Thursday. NPR's Frank Ordonez reports the visit coincides with an administration push for billions in additional aid to Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky will visit Washington following his appearance at the U.N. General Assembly in New York. And it certainly comes at a critical time as Russia desperately seeks help from countries like North Korea for its brutal war in Ukraine, as Ukrainian forces continue to make progress in their counteroffensive. It will be the third time that Biden and the Ukrainian leader meet at the White House. The visit comes as the Biden administration works to build support in Congress for an additional $24 billion in military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Zelensky is also expected to meet with members of Congress from both parties. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson is calling on the nation to embrace the knowledge of a difficult past at a time when some politicians are pushing to curtail discussions of racist history. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports the first black woman on the nation's high court was the keynote speaker at a memorial service for four black girls killed in a Birmingham church bombing 60 years ago. A Ku Klux Klan bomb killed Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Morris Wesley on Sunday morning, September 15, 1963, at 16th Street Baptist Church. From that historic pulpit, Brown Jackson said, to move forward, the nation needs the whole truth about its history. Parts of this country's story can be hard to think about. I know that atrocities like the one we are memorializing today are difficult to remember and relive. But I also know that it is dangerous to forget them. She warned the same forces of hate, fear, and division are still present today. 
Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Birmingham. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. There's a coastal flood warning tonight for all of Cape Cod and the islands. National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Latham says Hurricane Lee is on track to pass by New England during high tide later this evening. That's where they're going to get the most rainfall. Um, there's the risk for some coastal flooding, and also that's where they're going to be getting the strongest winds. Latham says the Cape can expect sustained winds of 30 to 40 miles per hour, with gusts reaching up to 60 miles an hour. The strong waves from Lee are expected to cause beach erosion from Chatham to Provincetown. Greg Berman works on coastal issues with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. He says Outer Cape beaches are most likely to feel the effects, but other parts of the region are vulnerable too. It's very possible for some of the northeast winds to push a surge up into Cape Cod Bay. So there's potential for some of the consistently eroding areas along there, anywhere from Town Neck Beach and Sandwich all the way through Barnstable, Sandy Neck, those areas. Berman's team has been putting instruments on beaches this week to monitor the rising seas. Senator Ed Markey says the strength of Hurricane Lee and other extreme weather is being fueled by climate change. In less than 24 hours, Lee intensified from a Category 1 to a Category 5, uh, and that's because the waters off our shores are so much hotter than they've ever been. Markey is urging coastal residents to be prepared. A grand jury today indicted a Duxbury woman for the murders of her three young children. Lindsay Clancy is charged with killing her children back in January. She remains hospitalized following a suicide attempt after the children were murdered. Her lawyer says Clancy has mental illness and was over-medicated by her treatment providers. The Red Sox are in Toronto tonight for the start of a weekend series with the Blue Jays. Brian Bayo will be on the mound for the Sox. Jose Berrios gets the start for Toronto. Mostly cloudy and breezy tonight. The lows around 61. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers tomorrow. We'll some gusty winds as Hurricane Lee passes by about 200 miles off the coast. A coastal flood advisory and high surf advisory will be in effect. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The United Auto Workers are holding a rally in Detroit this afternoon to mark the start of a historic and unusual strike. The union is striking against all three major automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, but only at one plant per company. Right now, thousands of workers are striking, which is less than 10 percent of all unionized workers at the big three, but that number could grow. NPR's Camila Dominoski joins us now from the site of the rally. Hey, Camila. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so I know that you've been out on the picket lines meeting a lot of workers. What are you hearing from them? Yeah, well, when I can hear them over the cacophonous sound of all the horns that are honking uh, to show support for, for these picketers, you know, a lot of people talked about the fact that they're making history with this strike. The unions never struck all three at once. There's some excitement around that. But, of course, there's also, you know, fear and concern about the economic toll that going on strike takes on a family. There's also broad consensus, I should say, that the companies can afford to do better than their current offers. One thing that really struck me was that out walking along the picket line, you know, nationally, there's been a lot of focus on wages and the 20 percent raise those companies are offering, the 40 percent raise the union has asked for, the cost of living increase. And 
those things matter. They matter a lot to workers, right? But when I was walking and talking to picketers today, they were talking a lot about things that are showing up much less in the national headlines. Oh, interesting. Things like what? Well, things like how long it takes to get to maximum pay progression, and particularly things like health care in retirement. I met a worker named Eric Mullins. Here's one of the things he said to me. They need to give some guys like me health care after we retire. I, I'm third generation. My grandfather started here, and I couldn't tell you when. And my dad's been here since 95, so he's, he's got almost 30 years in here. And his insurance is far greater than mine. And is he retired? No, still nope, okay. still here. But when he retires, what's he going to get? Oh, he'll still have insurance. Absolutely. He'll still, he'll still get everything. He'll get a pension, all his benefits. We get nothing. So that's the kind of stuff that's got in. Wow. Okay, so this worker, he's looking back at what the union used to give to people like his dad, mm-hmm. and that's what he wants for his generation, too. How realistic is that? That question is really what is at the heart of these strikes. The United Auto Workers is trying, this union is trying to get back things that it used to have and that it gave up, and particularly things that it gave up in 2007, 2009, in order to help the automakers through what was a huge, huge crisis. And from the workers' perspective, that worked. Now the companies, you know, they're doing great. They've got huge profits. A lot of people out there picketing today talked to me about the size of these corporate profits. So now it's our turn. Give these things back. But on the other side of the table, sources that automakers have told me that things like retirement health care specifically, that exact thing that Mullins was talking about, Mm -hmm. that it's a non-starter for them because of that exact same history, because it was such a financial burden to be committed to these costs that kept growing, that they couldn't control, that that was a big part of what pushed two of these big three into bankruptcy. And they don't want to go back to that, that kind of a crisis situation. So they're both looking at the past, and that's one reason why they're at the point of now reaching these strikes. Huh. Okay, so from where you are standing, what is going to be happening next? Well, there's a rally kicking off. There's Bernie Sanders is going to be speaking. But tomorrow, negotiations are going to resume in earnest. And at any point, the union could decide to strike more plants. This whole strategy is built around being uh, something that can have an element of surprise. That is NPR's Camila Dominoski in Detroit. Thank you so much, Camila. Thank you. The governor of Maine has declared a state of emergency as Hurricane Lee approaches the state. Much of Maine is under a tropical storm warning, and Lee is expected to bring high seas, heavy rain, and strong winds. We're joined now by Maine public reporter Caitlin Bedian, who is in Bar Harbor. Hey there. Hi, thanks for having me. How are things looking in Bar Harbor today? Well, strangely enough, it has been a beautiful day here in Bar Harbor. The sun has been out for most of the day with clear skies, but it has been unusually quiet for the town. Hmm. Uh, to compare, when I was here in June, I was came in on a cold and rainy Monday morning and the town was still packed. So to see it this empty on such a nice day really speaks to the storm and the concerns about that. You know, there are cruise ships that were supposed to die So to see it this empty on such a nice day really speaks to the storm and the concerns about that. You know, there are cruise ships that were supposed to dock here this weekend that canceled. Uh, Looking out at the water, you can see that a lot of people have taken their boats out of the water. Uh, And even the few tourists that are here, I spoke with. 
come there with concerns about if there will be flooding or impacts from the storm. Well, and I know from friends who live in Maine and who have <laughs> complained all summer that it has been a, there's been a lot of rainy and cold days in Maine this year. Is that adding to concerns about possible flooding this weekend? Definitely. There have been several storms over the summer that caused flooding in different lot easier to knock trees over and then in turn knock down power lines. Uh, the fire chief here in Bar Harbor said there's only a few areas that are likely to flood, so he's really focused on the trees. So what's the official guidance? What are people uh, being told to do to prepare? Much of it is the same advice that has been given for other storms, you know, to stay inside and prepare for power outages. Utilities here in Maine have been preparing with extra crews to respond to outages. Uh, and the fire chief here in Bar Harbor spoke to coordinating with his staff and creating checklists for each day, mostly telling people to really stay away from downed power lines and trees and to just be patient while officials work to respond to all the damage. While well, they clean up from whatever is coming. Real quick before I let you go, um, I, I want to ask about one other place because I know you're near Acadia National Park. What do preparations there look like? Yeah, so the park has gone ahead and closed campgrounds uh, to make sure that nobody is staying out overnight uh, with the storm coming in. And then certain areas where it's lower elevation, where there are concerns about flooding, have been closed as well. But like everybody else, they're kind of waiting to assess the damage afterwards. That is Maine Public's Caitlin Badian reporting today from Bar Harbor. Thanks so much. Thanks again for having me. It's not just physical obstacles that are getting in the way of help to earthquake survivors in Morocco. The Moroccan government has been criticized for mishandling the response. But Moroccans in the quake zone insist that they stand behind their king. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. There are traffic jams on the tiny roads high in the Atlas Mountains as rescue teams, aid trucks, and cars full of journalists try to squeeze by each other on hairpin curves. Dutch rescue volunteer Saad Atia says their sniffer dogs are trained to find survivors, so every minute counts. When we arrived on Sunday, I thought we can reach the government, but the government that was not really welcoming us. They say, yeah, you, you should get approval from the embassy, or you go to Rabat, to Minister of Foreign Affairs. Yeah, so that's mean just... Uh, Go away. We don't need you. So they joined other volunteer rescue teams, but he says they lost a day. The Moroccan government has approved aid from only four countries, despite many more offers of help. Unlike in Turkey's recent quake, where Atya also worked, there have been next to no survivors pulled from the rubble in Morocco. To be fair, that's also largely due to the traditional adobe houses in Berber villages. The mud brick insulates well from cold and heat, says Mirad Sassani, a professor of structural engineering at Northeastern University, but it collapses easily in quakes. When it crushes, it becomes like powder and soil would fill everywhere. Leaving no shelter spaces or air pockets, he says. When you arrive at a destroyed village, it mostly looks like a giant heap of rocks and earth. Mission impossible to find life. Despite the overwhelming needs, on Thursday, the German Red Cross said it was forced to cancel a plane of humanitarian aid due to an abrupt change in Moroccan regulations. And French offers of help were ignored from the beginning. Morocco's king, Mohammed VI, is said to have frosty relations with President Emmanuel Macron, 
Whether real or imagined, the incident created diplomatic tensions that Macron tried to calm in a video to the Moroccan people this week. I want to tell Moroccans directly that France was devastated by this terrible earthquake, he said. We are ready to provide humanitarian aid, but we await your green light. The message completely backfired, infuriating Moroccans. The country's powerful and frequently absent king was reportedly in his multi-million dollar Paris apartment when the quake struck. He returned to Morocco later the next day. Former Moroccan journalist Abu Bakr Jamai now teaches international relations in France. He says reaction to the earthquake is proof that Morocco is not a democracy under King Mohammed VI. And he remained in the, out of the country for 19 hours. And during these 19 hours, it's as if Morocco didn't have a government and worse, didn't have almost a state because there was no communication between any official with the rest of the population. World leaders expressed their condolences, their support to Morocco, and not one Moroccan politician voiced anything, something toward the Moroccans. Media here is restricted and it's hard to find Moroccans ready to criticize their monarch. But most seem sincere in their support. Mountain villagers amid the destruction even yelled out to us, long live the king. In a town at the base of the Atlas Mountains, men are unloading trucks coming from around the country filled with mattresses, tents and blankets for the remote villages. On every truck is a picture of the Moroccan king. 23-year-old volunteer Amin Zairi bristles at criticism of his government's response to the disaster. We don't need help from any other country, especially not France, he says, adding, long live the king. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, MZ's Morocco. are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks for listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Just ahead, marking one year since the death of a 22-year-old Iranian woman who died in police custody after allegedly wearing her headscarf incorrectly. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. On Wall Street, stocks were down. The Dow fell eight-tenths of a percent to close at 34,618. Both the S&P and the Nasdaq also fell more than one and a quarter percent. In local business news, the state's unemployment rate ticked up slightly in August. Last month's jobless rate was 2.6 percent, up a tenth of a percent from July. Still, the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates the state gained 15,400 jobs in August. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, a certified AeroSeal installer designed to help homeowners get ready for winter by sealing versus replacing existing ductwork. Go EndlessEnergy.com. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fair, drop-off lunch service for celebrating Spanish Heritage Month in Greater Boston, LaCuchara.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. 
Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says coastal communities will get the biggest impact from Hurricane Lee with battering waves, beach erosion, rip currents, and minor coastal flooding midnight tonight and into midday tomorrow. The bay side of Cape Cod and Nantucket likely to see the worst of the coastal issues with the water piling up. The wind will ramp up tonight and peak wind is expected after midnight until late morning tomorrow. Gusts 50 to 60 miles per hour on Cape Cod and the islands and isolated gusts to 70 there. Along the remainder of the coast, gusts 40 to 45. No wind concerns inland. Isolated to scattered pockets of wind damage and outages will result. Now for the rain, outer tropical bands will pivot into the Cape tonight, continuing off and on through late morning tomorrow. And then it's showery after that. Otherwise, a few brief downpours elsewhere. No big flooding concerns. Danielle Noyes tells us Sunday will be sunny and in the 70s. Right now at 421, it's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Iran, authorities are setting up new checkpoints, deliberately slowing the country's already slow internet, and detaining people, people they suspect may be planning to join protests this weekend. Those protests would mark one year since the death of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman who died in police custody, having been arrested reportedly for not wearing her headscarf correctly. It sparked outrage, the biggest anti-regime protests that country had seen in years. But the crackdown was as brutal as it was predictable. Iran's security forces beat protesters. Hundreds were killed, thousands arrested. And by the time my team and I landed in Tehran this past February, the protests had largely been quelled. Still, as we walked the streets of Tehran, we saw quite a few women out and about with their hair uncovered, defying the mandatory dress code. Here's a mother and daughter we stopped on the sidewalk. You're not wearing hijab. Is that new? Did you wear one before the protest? Yes, before. I use it, but right now, no. When did you take it off? Do you remember? Maybe three or four months ago, after the death of Masa Amini. After the death of Masa Amini. Well, I want to bring in Golnaz Esfandiari. She's an Iranian-born journalist who covers Iran from outside the country for Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Golnaz, great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. What do we know about how tense it is right now in Iran? What are you hearing on this eve of the anniversary? So what we're seeing is um, an intensified repression. The establishment is um, cracking down on activists and others. The family members of those killed uh, in the brutal state crackdown have been harassed. Uh, They've been uh, pressured to remain silent. Uh, about 20 of them have been detained, uh, including um, the, the family of Mahsa Amini has come under immense pressure. 
a rights group today reported that uh, around 300 people have been arrested in the past two months. And so, so what we're seeing is, you know, a regime that is uh, increasingly afraid of its own people. Huh. What you're describing sounds as though, if anything, the regime has been emboldened, is cracking down more than it was uh, a year ago. Is that right? Yeah, the, the regime has become uh, even more repressive. Uh, but, you know, the actions we're seeing are not the actions of a confident regime. On the contrary, they're, they're, they're terrified of the people. They're terrified of the, of the women, especially. Uh, and and they, they see that despite all the measures they've been taking, despite all the people that were killed in the crackdown, over 500 people, including children, the people's defiance is far from over. Before we move on, have the leaders of Iran offered any concessions, any meaningful concessions in response to these protests? You know, the worldview of Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, is that you, sh- you should not um, show any weakness and concessions, in his view, is showing weakness to the population. What they did is that after uh, Mahsa Amini's death in custody, um, there were no more morality patrols in the streets. So that was a small concessions. And then later, um, there was this amnesty. Um, they announced an amnesty, I think, for thousands of people who were arrested in the crackdown. But later on, we saw that some of those people who were amnestied were sent back to prison or the government kept pressuring them and harassing them, including journalists. As we speak, two journalists who broke Massa Amini's story, they're still in jail for a year just for reporting uh, about her death and uh, about her funeral. So what do we know of what life looks like now for women in Iran? You know, I, I, from the reports we're receiving, uh, women have become uh, braver, um, they're bolder. They're still, despite, you know, um, the warnings by officials and uh, other attempts to force them to wear the hijab, there are still many women who are coming to the streets without a headscarf. Now, some of them tell us, you know, I have a headscarf in my bag in case it's needed. But they're just defying. And and I was speaking to this woman and and she told me, this is the least I can do in reaction to what happened in this country. I personally think that something broke during the recent protests and especially the crackdown. And I I believe it was a turning point and nothing, it's not going to go back to things. We're not going to go back to the way they were. Say more about that when you say something broke. What do you mean? 70, about 70 children were killed. How can people forget that? Uh, How can people forget the the level of cruelty we saw from this regime in the streets of uh, Tehran and other cities? That's what I mean by something broken. I don't think uh, people can go back to the way they were. The gap between the people and the establishment, and it, it was already a huge gap. It has widened. The government or the establishment is not willing and it cannot uh, address the grievances people have. 
What will you be watching for tomorrow on the actual anniversary as you try to assess what the state of dissent is in Iran? Well, I don't expect a major protest because of the crackdown, because of the security measures uh, authorities have been taking in the past days and months and weeks. But we will be watching if, you know, we receive any videos um, from inside the country of people protesting. Uh, I will be also definitely reading what the state media are reporting uh, to find out between the lines what's happening. But we have, we have lots of people who, despite the pressure they face, they still send us information from inside the country. So we'll be looking at those and see uh, and try to find out what's happening inside the country. That's interesting, though, because it sounds like what you're saying is even if we do not see mass protests uh, this weekend, that does not mean the anti-government anger is gone. It's just Absolutely gone not. beneath Absol- the surface. Absolutely not. There's there's fire under the ashes. Uh, people are very much angry about what happened. And there's also a lot of frustration because of the poor state of the economy that is crushed by sanctions, but as well as years of mismanagement. People feel they're taken hostage by, you know, by the policies of this, this regime. And they're just fed up. You know, Iranians, as you know yourself, you've been there. Um, they're very much connected. They're, they know exactly what's happening in the world, especially the young people. And they're aware of the rights they're being denied of under this establishment. Golnaz Esfandiari is the managing editor for Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty's Persian service. We reached her today in Prague. Golnaz, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. As the first inoculators who were dealing with smallpox in the early 1700s uh, discovered. Historian Simon Sharma. It's a very counterintuitive thing to stick what you know is a bit of poison inside your own perfectly healthy body. And yet, we should. Pandemics, vaccines, and all the latest news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Hundreds of out-of-state utility workers are now in Maine amid fears of widespread power outages as Hurricane Lee approaches New England and eastern Canada. New England harbors and fishing villages are being emptied of boats as the region prepares for storm force wind gusts that will span an area more than 400 miles wide. Caitlin Budayan of Maine Public Broadcasting uh, tells us how officials and residents there are preparing for the storm tonight and into the weekend. Officials are generally telling folks the same advice that we would get with a different storm uh, to sort of stay inside if at all possible, be prepared to lose power, uh, and then also 
you know, be prepared to be patient with uh, issues that come up because obviously emergency services will be responding to multiple incidents if there are power lines down or trees down that close roads. A tropical storm warning has been extended from Maine through Massachusetts with powerful gusts expected to arrive late tonight in southern New England. The Biden administration is adding more Iranians to a sanctions list that comes on the eve of the death of a young woman at the hands of the so-called morality police. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The targets of the latest U.S. sanctions are accused of helping the Iranian regime's violent suppression of protests following Masa Amini's death. The U.S. says it is taking the action with several other countries, including Canada, the United Kingdom and Australia. An Iranian internet research firm and three state-backed media outlets were added to the sanctions list, along with 25 individuals. Masa Amini's death sparked widespread protests across Iran last year. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says those protesters were met with, in his words, unspeakable violence, censorship, and mass arrests. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A retired Boston police officer has pleaded not guilty for his role in the 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Prosecutors say Joseph Fisher assaulted a Capitol Police officer during the January 6th riot. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more. Fisher was first arrested at his home in Plymouth back in March. This month, he was indicted by a grand jury in D.C. on eight counts. Prosecutors say Fisher pushed a chair into and assaulted a Capitol Police officer who was responding to another rioter who had deployed pepper spray. Fisher spent more than 20 years as a police officer in Boston before retiring in 2016. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. As Hurricane Lee approached Governor Healy today declared a state of emergency and activated the National Guard. Healy says 50 National Guard members will be prepared to make water rescues if necessary. Cape Cod and the islands will get the brunt of the storm. Travel is already being affected. The MBTA and the Steamship Authority are canceling ferries. The annual Big E is opening today in West Springfield. Adam Frenier reports the agricultural fair runs through the next two weeks. Last year, the event attracted some 1.6 million attendees. It's not only a popular attraction, but also an important economic driver. Gene Cassidy, the president of the Eastern States Exposition, says one study pegged the Big E's economic impact on the surrounding area at about three-quarters of a billion dollars. We're generating uh, tax revenues to the Commonwealth. Uh, We're generating business, which has a ripple effect throughout the economy, which creates jobs. People driving near the Big E can also expect an impact on traffic, especially on the weekends, when attendance usually surpasses 100,000 a day. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Mostly cloudy and breezy tonight. The lows around 61 degrees. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers tomorrow. We'll have some gusty winds as Hurricane Lee passes by about 200 miles off the coast. The coastal flood advisory and high surf advisory will be in effect. The highs around 70 degrees. It's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, 
dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Hiding behind a small storefront in northeast Los Angeles, there's a whole world of synthesizers. Keyboards upon keyboards stacked from floor to ceiling and racks of knobs and dials oozing with cables. It's the Vintage Synthesizer Museum, and everything in there actually works. I feel like this looks like we're in a spaceship. Let's see. There are literally four shelves of equipment in front of us, and Alan is twisting. Holy... We recently met Alan Palomo there. He's the former frontman of the chill wave band Neon Indian. And the day we met, he was sporting a neatly trimmed mustache, green terry cloth shorts, and a shirt with an enchilada recipe on it. Chopped cooked beef, chicken or turkey, but I have, I've yet to try it. Um, but it looks legit. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm just giving it a quick glance. It, that it sounds totally about right. It looks like a legit recipe. And I love that it's printed upside down. So all you have to do is look <laughs> down like, on your chest and read it right side in the up. kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. All right. We'll talk about his taste in fashion some other time. But what we want to talk about now is his decades long obsession with synthesizers. Because it was obvious, trailing him around the museum, that he is a serious synth scholar. He knows just which knobs to twist, which buttons to tap, to get the right sounds from outer space. Yeah, there you go. He also made keyboards talk. Sounding trick, you know, where you can kind of make weird vowel sounds with it. Like a, you know, like a A-A-C-O, you know, but it's kind of, yeah, like a wah kind of stuff. And he gave me a drum lesson on the legendary Roland 808 drum machine. So actually, all right, try. I want more cowbell. More cowbell. So just start putting it in random places around the sequence and that's how you like, yeah. I'm punching all the cowbells. That's awesome. First go, amazing. There's a synth nerd in me too. All of the synthesizer knowledge Palomo has, it just melds into gorgeous pop on his new album, World of Hassle. And this album marks a turning point for Palomo. It's the first record he's ever released under his own name. It's also like such a tried and true 80s male rock cliche to like leave your band in your mid-30s in a crisis to like make a jazz record, you know? It's like Brian Ferry did it, Sting did so it. So this is your jazz record. Oh, right yeah, 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 for sure. I, I get Long before Alan Palomo became a fixture of synth-driven pop music a decade ago, he was a kid in Monterey, Mexico. Then, when he was five, his parents took him and his brother across the border to Texas, an experience that he sang about in his 2019 track, Toyota Man. I remember that I didn't I didn't understand yet that we were moving there indefinitely. And I remember it was the year the Lion King came out and I had a bunch of Lion King toys and I, <laughs> I was asking my parents in the backseat, like, did I bring enough for this trip? And they're like, Yeah, it's you there's enough. 
so obviously we got to San Antonio and then, you know, I saw this empty apartment. It, it was just dawning on me like, oh, we've moved here. We're like not coming back. Even from an early age, Paloma was exposed to music. His dad had been a gigging musician in Mexico and put out a couple records in the 80s. And he encouraged Paloma and his brother to take a piano and guitar, along with some other things. And I remember he was just like, okay, I got it. We'll dress you up as clowns and you'll play cumbia and you'll be called the payasonicos, which is like a pun that means like the sonic clowns. never came into fruition, but Palomo says he has tried writing some cumbia music. And on his new album, he sings in his native Spanish more than he ever has on tracks like La Madrileña. As a songwriter, it's like now another another lane in your arsenal of like ways in which you can express yourself. But because I'd always written music in English and hadn't expressed myself in my native tongue, I, I didn't want to do it as a gimmick. Uh, and I really wanted to take the time and wait until I had kind of found my own lyrical style and, and, and voice. You know, I, I started reading a lot of like contemporary Mexican novelists like uh, Fernanda Melchor or Yuri Herrera. Uh, and, and was finding a means of like, you know, okay, what's what's your prose style in Spanish? Because you haven't really written in Spanish. So once I kind of got comfortable with that, then, you know, you got songs like Nudista Mundial and La Madrileña, and I'm hoping to just kind of start incorporating it more and more. You know, some of your childhood memories on this album feel sort of familiar to me, like hanging out in a shopping mall in the 1990s. I'm talking about the track, The Wailing Mall. You mentioned Rainforest Cafe, Payless. 1994, there was panic at the Payless. A little brown boy led astray. Did you spend a lot of time at the shopping mall when you were growing up in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, that yeah, was kind of like, uh, before we moved, we would go to the U.S. to shop you know, from Monterrey, that was a very popular thing to do amongst the people in Monterrey. It's like, all right, come Christmas time, you know, maybe you go get, because it was cheaper. If you wanted to get like a, a Super Nintendo or a Sega or something, like to buy it in Mexico, the taxes were like insane. So we used to drive to the U.S. to get like Christmas gifts. So I think there was this association with the U.S. as like this big mall. When I dream about that mall, I sort of see like the entirety of the United States is this mall that you can't escape the sprawl. Like I got lost in the mall at the Payless Shoes. I lost my parents and, and, I, and, I, and I, I still haven't left the mall. I'm 35 now. It's like, a, you know, to me, the idea that it's like they would still be paging my mom like 20 years later, you know, it's just like if he's not picked up uh, in the next hour, he becomes the property of, uh, you know, of, of, of Payless Shoes, you know, or something. <laughs> So yeah, there's a bunch of like, it's just a weird soup of like pop culture, Americana in my head. And, and, and yeah, the idea that it's all 
becoming one giant mall and it's becoming like very claustrophobic and that it does feel that way you know That was musician Alan Palomo. His new album, World of Hassle, is out now. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. Governor Mar Healy today declared a state of emergency and activated the National Guard as Hurricane Lee is now just hours away from impacting Cape Cod and the islands. We feel we're prepared across the Commonwealth. We certainly hope, uh, hope for the best, but we always have to prepare for the worst. First responders and communities on the Cape have been preparing all week. Chip Riley is Emergency Preparedness Specialist for Barnesville County. Chip, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Chip, tell us, how will the state of emergency impact the response of communities on the Cape? Well, what a state of emergency does is it it's an anticipation of potential impacts where a community could exceed their case, and it'll bring some more flexibility on how they can spend funding and also the availability for bigger assets. Um, as an example, the National Guard assets that have been deployed down to this region. Sure. And it, it just gives the communities more flexibility on how they respond. Yeah, you, uh, Governor Healy says that some communities have asked for assistance, and, and that's why she's deploying these National Guard units. Can, can you tell us more about the Guard's role on the Cape this weekend? Sure. Well, we help to coordinate that. We have a really good coordination system down here all the communities working together. So we helped to identify some communities that might have a need. We did it on a geographical breakdown. So we're pre-deploying these really, really big trucks. So in the event that there was high water, the there was better access for first responders, public safety to get into areas that may be flooded or inundated to either deal with the situation or to help extricate folks if they needed to be pulled out of their home. Mm-hmm. Get them pre-positioned. Uh, you had a late afternoon call with MEMA, the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. What are they telling you now? Well, we got a weather update. Um, the governor staff through MEMA explained the state of emergency declaration, and we go around the area and get updates and ask any questions that we might have. It's a similar call that we have here on Barnstable County. Um, we had one this morning, and we'll have another one tomorrow. We put all the pertinent folks together so that everybody's working on the same page to respond effectively and efficiently. Mm-hmm. What sort of preparations are people on the Cape uh, making for this storm? Well, a lot of boats have been pulled out of the um, we're, uh We've got our shelter system ready to go if it were needed. Um, people have been checking generators. We have a of the local high-water vehicles um, and and pretty much all kinds of coordination. Uh, the emergency operations centers are spun up and ready to go as needed, and we're standing by to stand by and hope that we're not needed, and then it's a slow day tomorrow. Sure. Living on the coast, we've we've seen our share of storms. Is there a danger that, that people can become complacent and then let down their guards as the storm hits? There is, and uh, one of the things we like to tell people, especially down this way, is tomorrow's 
not a great day to go look at the big waves. We ask people to stay home if they, if they have that ability to uh, stay home, stay safe, let the first responders be available for, for other emergencies or other instances. We want to reduce our need as much as possible and keep everybody in a safe and comfortable place. Sure. Cape Cod is made up of 15 towns. Are, are some of those towns a bit more vulnerable to this storm because of their location? They are. It really depends on, on the wind and wave direction. Our province town is a little bit susceptible. They've taken some pretty significant preemptive action. We've deployed a sandbag down there. They've worked with some berming around town. Um, the north cape facing beaches of St. Barnstable and Dennis might have some impact. So they, they've taken steps. As I said before, a lot of boats have been pulled out of the water to help reduce the risk of, to those assets. Okay. Worried about some of the houses on some of the cliffs, so the communities will be out doing some some outreach and keeping an eye on those kinds of places. I'm sure you'll be keeping an eye on things too. Thank you very much, Chip Riley, Emergency Preparedness Specialist for Barnstable County. Thanks for talking with us today, and stay safe. Thanks for having me. WBUR supporters include the Boston Globe's Globe Summit 2023, today's innovators, tomorrow's leaders, virtually or in person at WBUR's City Space, September 19th through 21st. The third annual event features speakers Rain Wilson, Devin McCourty, Alex Cora, Keith Lockhart, and more. Open to the public, registration at globe.com summit. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. The Red Sox are in Toronto tonight for the start of a weekend series with the Blue Jays. Brian Bayo will be on the mound for the Sox. Jose Barrios gets the start for Toronto. We'll get some wind and rain in Boston due to Hurricane Lee. It'll be a bit more intense on the Cape and the Islands with some coastal flooding and a surf advisory. Mostly cloudy and breezy tonight. The lows around 61. Mostly cloudy and a chance of showers tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Amy Dickinson showed how we love to support our celebrity guests as they take our quiz. Dude, you're never going to get this right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever we might try to throw off this week's special guest, Hillary Rodham Clinton, well, she's had worse. Join us for the news quiz where this week we all will be wearing pantsuits. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain is new to the job. He's been in office less than six months. And now he's leading workers on strike. The work stoppages against the big three automakers aren't a surprise, but Fain has taken a far more militant tone with management than recent UAW presidents. He wants workers to get their fair share as car companies enjoy huge profits. NPR's Don Gagne has this profile of a new union leader already shaking up his industry. Sean Fain's roots in the auto industry are deep. My grandparents were part of the millions of families who moved to the Midwest to work for auto companies and seek out a better life. One of those grandparents hired in at Chrysler in 1937, the year the UAW was officially recognized. And Fain likes to keep reminders of his connection to the past. Like my grandfather's pay stub that I carry with me every day, I'm proud to have inherited my grandma's Bible and her faith. 
On that latter point, Fain said this week that he finds a lot to relate to in biblical stories where people use their faith to stand up to fear. To say Sean Fain is an unlikely UAW president is an understatement. He got involved in the union shortly after he hired in as an electrician at a plant in Kokomo, Indiana in the 1990s. Labor analyst Harley Shaken of UC Berkeley says that part of the story is not so unusual. Fain took on challenges. He served an apprenticeship and he became shop chair in the Chrysler Kokomo Foundry. That's among the most demanding jobs in that you're dealing with grievances and issues on the shop floor all the time. Eventually, Fain landed a staff job at UAW headquarters in Detroit, but he was frustrated by the union's top leadership. The early 2000s brought hard times for the industry as the Great Recession hit, but Fain felt the union gave up too much in those days, too many concessions, including lower wages for new hires. But in his low-level position, he had no recourse. Then came a bombshell, a major corruption scandal for a union with a reputation of being above the board. This is from NPR four years ago. New charges today in a four-year-long FBI corruption investigation of the United Auto Workers Union. Another high-ranking union official was arrested today. Embezzlement of union dues and other offenses sent two former UAW presidents to prison. A federal monitor was named to oversee union operations. New rules were imposed, including direct elections by members for union leadership. That created an opening for reformers like Fain. Hello, my name is Sean Fain, and I'm running for UAW International President. Fain was seen as a long shot at best, but was a surprise finalist in a two-candidate runoff. Then he won that contest by the narrowest of margins. At his swearing-in in April, he left no doubt that his presidency would be different. Now we're here to come together to ready ourselves for the war against our only one and only true enemy, multi-billion dollar corporations and employers that refuse to give our members their fair share. And if rhetoric like that makes some people uncomfortable, Fain says so be it. Here he is at this year's Labor Day parade in Detroit, where he channeled Malcolm X. If we don't get our share of social and economic justice, I can guarantee you one thing. Come September 14th, we're going to take action to get it by any means necessary. Which brings us to today, day one of the strike Sean Fain has long prepared for, and a strike that will present a whole new set of challenges for this new UAW president. Don Gagne, NPR News, Detroit. In English, we adults like to say babies go cuckoo gaga. In French, though, it is achahara. And in Mandarin, it's yaya. So does baby babble actually sound different in different parts of the world? And what does that tell us about how babies learn to speak? NPR's Sydney Lupkin reports on how babies acquire language in our weekly dose of wonder. 
A few years ago, I was on a train, seated across the table from a French woman who was traveling with her toddler. His mom and I hit it off and spoke in English for a few hours. Meanwhile, this little boy had a lot to say. I couldn't understand it, but he clearly had opinions about his books, his snacks, maybe how cool it was that his hands were attached to his arms, all in what I just assumed was French. So finally, I said to his mom, completely earnestly, so what's he saying? And she paused for a while. And then she's like, nothing. He's a baby. Well, now I have my own baby. He's babbling up a storm, and I have questions. So I called up Mega Sundara, a professor of linguistics at UCLA, whose lab is unlike any lab you've ever heard of. For starters, there's a castle in it. Well, it's a sound booth, but it looks like a castle. So the thing about sound booths is they are intimidating spaces. So her student with a background in set design built a castle around it. Now Sundara studies how babies listen before they start talking and how they eventually learn language. When babies first start babbling at around six months old, they all sound the same, even deaf babies. But then they start to drift. So it turns out babies, are, even when they're very young, are uh, very good at imitating the rhythm and the intonation of the language they're hearing. Sundara also studies how babies respond to hearing different languages. In bilingual households, babies switch that babbling rhythm and melody depending on what language they're hearing. But in monolingual households, they don't. She led an experiment showing that that can change, however. At the beginning of the experiment, the baby is 9 or 10 months old and can only babble in English. Then they let the baby spend time with a research assistant who speaks Spanish. It's about five hours spread over four weeks. And in these sessions, you're just reading to them, playing with them in Spanish. That's all that's happening. Then when they repeat the experiment, the baby can change its babbling to match the Spanish sounds. Babies have this special skill for picking up language thanks to something called enhanced neuroplasticity. It basically means their brains are super adaptive. Here's Jeanette Reef of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association. So when babies are born... They can hear and distinguish all of the sounds and all the languages in the world. Although there was once a fear that learning two languages at once would confuse babies, that's since been disproven, Reef says. There are, of course, cognitive and social benefits to being bilingual. I work with many families. You know, I have this conversation a lot with them. We speak three languages in our home. Which language should we choose? And I say all three. We're not confusing we're only increasing brain flexibility and maximizing the neuroplasticity that your baby has right now. That heightened ability to learn language lasts until they're five, with some lingering language superpowers lasting until age 12. So while my baby isn't walking yet and insists on scooting backwards while blowing raspberries, his babble is one sign his brain is doing amazing things. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from United Airlines, committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 without relying on carbon offsets. Learn more at united.com. From USPS with Ground Advantage, the new two to five day package shipping service. Ground Advantage details are at usps.com advantage. The United States Postal Service, delivering for America. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. You can also find us on the WBUR app. We'll get some wind and rain in Boston due to Hurricane Lee. It'll be a bit more intense on the Cape and the Islands with some coastal flooding and a surf advisory. Stay with WBUR for the latest on the storm. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The United Auto Workers Union is on strike. One of their demands is guaranteed pensions, but some economists don't like the idea. They can negotiate for more generous 401k contributions or even an option to annuitize. There is scope for retirement, but I just don't think these old school pensions are it. It's Friday, September 15th. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, why pensions have fallen out of favor in recent years. Also ahead, the immense humanitarian needs in Libya following the recent massive flooding in that country. And Republicans in Wisconsin are seeking to oust the state's top election official and discussing impeaching a new state Supreme Court justice for her comments on redistricting. The Cape and Islands are preparing for a windy and soggy brush with Hurricane Lee. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. With a targeted strike by the United Auto Workers Union underway against the big three Detroit automakers, the Biden administration has wasted little time in weighing in. The president expressing sympathy for the strikers against GM Ford and Stellantis and noting he is dispatching two of his top aides to Detroit to help bridge the gap. Let's be clear. No one wants a strike. Say it again. No one wants a strike. But I respect workers' right to use their options under the collective bargaining system. And I understand the workers' frustration. Over generations, auto workers sacrificed so much to keep the industry alive and strong, especially through the economic crisis and the pandemic. Workers deserve a fair share of the benefits they help create for an enterprise. The UAW representing 146,000 auto workers is striking selected plants, a first in the union's 88-year history. Officials say more plants will be added if the companies won't deliver better wage and benefit proposals. The strike by union auto workers, meanwhile, at plants in Missouri, Michigan, Ohio, is expected to have an economic impact. As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, how big an impact depends on how long the strike lasts and how much it grows. The United Auto Workers Union has called this a limited, targeted strike, starting with just three plants. 
But the union says more workers will walk out in coming days if the parties don't reach an agreement. Ford warned that a 12-week strike could cost workers $17,500 in lost wages and profit sharing. Striking workers will get $500 a week in strike pay from the union, but that's well under half of what most auto workers would earn if they were on the job. Dealerships aren't expected to see their inventories dwindle right away, as auto companies have built up stockpiles of popular models like the Ford F-150 and the Dodge Ram. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Texas state senators have begun deliberations in the impeachment trial of Ken Paxton. Suspended attorney general faces charges of obstruction of justice and bribery. Texas newsroom, Sergio Martinez Beltran has more. The Republican-led Texas Senate will now have to decide whether Ken Paxton used his office to shield a political donor from an FBI investigation. Paxton's defense team says the allegations are baseless. Some of those pushing for Paxton's conviction are conservative lawmakers who have supported Paxton in the past, in part because of his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. A conviction on any of the impeachment charges would automatically remove Paxton from office. I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran in Austin. New England's harbors and fishing villages are being emptied of boats as some commercial and recreational boaters scramble to batten down the hatches ahead of the arrival of Hurricane Lee. Though Lee is weakened to a Category 1 storm, it still has winds of upwards of 80 miles an hour. It's expected to make landfall tomorrow, likely in eastern Canada. Stocks closed down on the week. The Dow fell 288 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Well, as Hurricane Lee approaches, Governor Healy today declared a state of emergency to help the state respond quickly. Healy is also taking other actions. We're activating up to 50 National Guards people to be able to assist if needed, uh, in particular by using specialized high water vehicles that can navigate our flood waters. At least 10 towns requested those high water vehicles. The storm is going to affect coastal communities overnight into tomorrow. Residents are being urged to prepare. Massachusetts Emergency Management Director Don Brantley says residents with medical conditions should be extra cautious. If you have a concern about access to health care, personal care services, or other medical or disability related needs that could be impacted by flooding, consider self-evacuating ahead of the storm just to ensure your health and safety. National Weather Meteorologist Bill Latham says the Cape and Islands will see sustained winds around 40 miles an hour and stronger. It's looking like real late tonight, like after midnight. There could be some gusts of uh, higher than 50 miles an hour, probably like 55 to potentially even 60 mile an hour at times. Um, and that's late tonight into early Saturday morning. The power companies say they have repair crews positioned around the Cape and Islands to respond to any outages. In Rye, New Hampshire, despite a high surf advisory and waves breaking 6 to 10 feet, people are out surfing this afternoon. Surfer Kareem Durham is concerned about less experienced surfers deciding to come out this weekend. Then you put yourself and others in danger, and then you, you know, we don't really have a lifeguard at this beach right now. Um, so it happens that the other surfers have to look out for others, and they shouldn't be out here if they're not trained. The National Weather Service is also warning of strong rip currents. There's word that the chair of the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission has been suspended. The Boston Globe reports State Treasurer Deborah Goldberg took the action against Shannon O'Brien this week. The state treasurer is responsible for appointing the state's top cannabis regulator. Her office is not commenting. Goldberg appointed O'Brien a year ago. The Red Sox are in Toronto tonight to start a weekend series with the Blue Jays. 
We'll get some wind and rain in Boston due to Hurricane Lee. Mostly cloudy and breezy tonight, the low 61. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The United Auto Workers Union is a big deal to President Biden. He wants to be known as the most pro-labor president in U.S. history. And today, at the White House, he did indeed offer full-throated support to the union, which kicked off a strike last night at midnight. Auto companies have uh, seen record profits including the last few years because of the extraordinary skill and sacrifices of the UAW workers. But those record profits have not been shared fairly, in my view. Well, we're going to spend the next few minutes considering one piece of what the union is demanding, guaranteed pensions. This goes back to the 1960s when the auto industry was booming and you got a job with a company like General Motors in your 20s and probably stayed there until you retired in your 50s or 60s and you kept getting paid after you left. Well, economist Allison Schrager does not think bringing back old-school pensions is a good idea. Schrager is an economist and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and we've got her on the line to ask why. Allison Schrager, welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, why? Why are you not a fan of bringing back the old-fashioned pension? And I, w- I want to consider this from both sides. Start with the auto industry, because that seems a more obvious case. I guess pensions are just really, really expensive. Yeah, I mean, there's the case for uh, the auto makers and the auto workers. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it really makes sense for either at this stage. I mean, pensions are very nice. I think anyone who has them is very lucky to have them, especially if they're worth a lot. They're still very popular in the public sector, like teachers and firemen have them. And, you know, it's a very nice thing if your employer keeps paying you after you work, but that's very expensive. I mean, because really what they're doing is they're bearing a lot of risk, the risk of how long you'll live if you end up living longer and the market risk because they have to finance these pensions with investments. Well, that's a nice thing. They actually pose more risks to workers than I think people often realize. First of all, I mean, there's a chance they won't do a good job managing that pension. And in which case, if the company goes bankrupt, they'll pawn the pension off and you could take a big haircut on that pension. And that's not something you can save for or sort of really insure against. So all Hmm. of a sudden you'll find you're retired and all of a sudden you get a 40% haircut in your pension, that is a big risk. Also, they're not really worth that much if you think you're going to change jobs in your lifetime. So if you're a young auto worker, even in an industry that's changing a lot, you know, might be going to electric vehicles, might be moving factories to the South, you really face the risk this pension really won't be worth that much. And this is actually a big issue in the military as well, and why they switched to 401k-like pensions for their younger people, because they found people not having sort of lifetime careers meant that they ended up with no retirement benefit at all. Okay. So I, you, you've just told us a couple things, and I want to make sure I'm with you. One is you can have this pension that sounds really great on paper, but there's a risk if the pension goes bust that you are not going to get the payments that you were counting on. Is that right? Yeah, it's way in the future. So there's always an incentive to underfund the pension. This used to be a bigger problem. Corporations now face more stringent accounting standards, so it's not as much of a problem as it used to be. But it still does happen because this is a big risk that's a liability far in the future, and that tends to be a recipe for not good pension management. You also touched on something which speaks to 
how much has changed since the 1960s, which, as I mentioned, a lot of people may see as kind of the, the boom days for Detroit and for the auto industry, which is that pensions uh, may not be great if you're going to change jobs early and often, which many more people do nowadays than they did a generation or two ago. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing super long tenure and lifetime employment is becoming a lot less common. And I think that's also going to be more of a concern in the auto industry as well, just with a lot of the changes they're having. I mean, this is another reason why there's been a big decline in defined benefit plans, and they don't really exist so much in the private sector anymore. And I think that certainly even in manufacturing can become more of a concern with more automation. You wrote a piece about all this for Bloomberg Opinion, where you are a columnist. And I want to ask about one line, quote, I strongly suspect that Sean Fain, this is the president of the UAW, I saw, strongly suspect that Sean Fain knows a return to the era of defined benefit pensions is unlikely, that he's using the demand as a bargaining chip. Why do you strongly suspect that? Well, I, I feel like we went through this in the in the early 2000s, all these automakers getting out of their pensions, and that was considered, you know, a big win because it was made them so uncompetitive. So of all the things he could ask for, asking for this, which one, doesn't really please younger workers because there's a good chance they won't end up with a retirement benefit at all. And something that's so expensive and has such a nasty history for the auto industry, it just seems like that would just, you know, be a real deal breaker. So I imagine this is something he'll probably end up caving on. What should the union be negotiating for if you could be in the room advising them? Well, I mean, I can see why they're trying to negotiate first at higher salary, more paid time off. And, you know, they could even negotiate for more generous retirement benefits, more generous 401k contributions, or even ideally, where you have to turn those 401ks into retirement benefits after you die, maybe even an option to annuitize. So there is scope for retirement, but I just don't think these old school pensions really are it. Economist Allison Schrager, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And now to Libya, where massive flooding has left at least 11,000 people dead, with at least 10,000 people still missing. That's according to the Libyan Red Crescent. And for survivors, immense humanitarian needs remain, including shelter, access to critical medical care, food, and clean water. One group that's providing assistance on the ground in Darna is the International Medical Corps. Talal Bernas is the acting country director for Libya. He joins us now from Benghazi. Welcome. Hello. Hi. So I understand that you toured Darna yesterday. Can you just tell us what you saw there? What I saw was basically devastating. Um, Buildings were destroyed and streets were banished out by the flooding. So the what I saw um, cannot be described in words mm-hmm. um, unless unless you're there and see that um, around 25% of the city has been washed out by the flooding. Wow. What would you say are the most urgent needs at this moment? So uh, according to our conversation with the local organizations and, and local authorities operating in the cities and, and our observation on the ground, I think that the most urgent needs uh, would be shelter, providing health care to the uh, community there, uh, providing food items as well. And most importantly, mm-hmm. is providing psychosocial support to the victims and survivors of this flooding. 
Are you able to get that psychosocial support out there at this moment? What are the greatest obstacles? Um, I think that the most challenge would be on how to reach survivors. But of course, with collaborating with the uh, local authorities um, mm -hmm. and working closely with the, with the community, we will be able to reach the affected communities. When you were touring Darna yesterday, was there a particular person, a particular image that has especially struck you? Uh, I, I would say the most emotional image that I witnessed yesterday when I was in, in Darna is that when we first got uh, in the ground and started uh, moving around the destroyed buildings, we, we saw many persons looking for their family members. We saw many women crying and speaking to the search and rescue teams, begging them to, to try to find their relatives alive. So that was, I think, the image that most um, stuck in, in my mind. Heartbreaking. Well, I understand that there is a potential health risk uh, posed by many of the bodies that have still not been recovered, that are still decomposing. How concerned are you that there is such a risk? Um, I think that we all share this concern, especially that many of the uh, missing people basically were not found yet. Mm -hmm. and, and many of the dead bodies are being washed out in, in other nearby cities. So the concern is that if these bodies will, will remain there without being processed, basically we will have lots of diseases that caused by uh, mosquitoes, like for example, cholera. Right. And we saw statements from the National Center for Disease Control advising the government to at least make sure that they block the access to these areas for now until they complete the search and rescue uh, operations. <laughs> and may I ask you, Talal, because I know that you have been doing humanitarian work in Libya for years now, struggling with so many challenges there, and what's happening now seems especially hard. How are you and, and other aid workers holding up? So basically, uh, we're holding up because our, our aim is to help the most affected uh, communities. And what we see now and what we saw uh, yesterday in the city of Darna was, uh, I mean, beyond imagination. I mean, the, the destruction, what uh, keeps us basically working and providing is seeing the victim and suffering of those people and our desire to at least get them through these this, uh, difficult times. Yes. Well, thank you for everything that you are doing now. That is Talal Bernas, the International Medical Corps Acting Country Director for Libya. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Popeyes may or may not have been the first major fast food chain to introduce a fried chicken sandwich, but in 2019, their popular offering started a trend that four years on shows no sign of abating. On our show tomorrow, The Chicken Sandwich Wars. You can listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered.
Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks so much for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we examine the differences between the impeachment actions undertaken for Presidents Nixon, Clinton, Trump, and Biden. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for spring. Learn more at bgsp.edu. On Wall Street today, stocks were down. The Dow fell eight-tenths of a percent to close at 34,618. The S&P fell more than one and a quarter percent at 44,50. And the Nasdaq was down more than one and a half percent at 13,708. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions. FreshCityKitchen.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Cape Cod and the islands will feel the strongest impact from Hurricane Lee. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says pounding surf, minor coastal flooding, gusting winds and rain arrive later this evening and last into tomorrow. Some of the outer bands of rain will arrive to the Cape and Islands this evening between about 8 and 11 p.m. Some downpours, rain totals 1 to 2 inches on the outer Cape to Nantucket, wrapping up by late morning to midday tomorrow. Otherwise, it's showery, but not much rain overall, and it will all be winding down early tomorrow. The wind gusting to 60 miles per hour on Cape, 45 miles per hour for the rest of the coast, will result in some pockets of damage and outages. The peak wind will be overnight until about 10 a.m. tomorrow. Actually, expect some sun breaking out by the afternoon tomorrow. Clearing comes in during the evening, and it will be a gorgeous day on Sunday. Lots of sun, low humidity, and highs in the 70s to around 80. And right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dementia Society of America, committed to helping support brain health and the millions of Americans experiencing the syndrome known as dementia. Learn more at 1-800-DEMENTIA.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Yesterday was quite a day at the Wisconsin State Capitol. There were two votes that we're going to talk about, and they're both tied to Republican efforts to shape election rules in that swing state. Let's dive into this with Wisconsin Public Radio's Anya Van Wagtendonk. Hey, Anya. Hey. Okay, so I know that one vote was related to the high-profile election of a liberal justice in Wisconsin, an election which basically shifted the power on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Can you just remind us why this was such a big deal? Right. When Janet Protasiewicz was elected in April, liberals were thrilled this was going to shift power on the court to a liberal majority for the first time in 15 years for cases that would involve abortion legality here in Wisconsin, but also the state's gerrymandered legislative maps. Those maps currently give Republicans outsized power in the state legislature. So while the electorate here in Wisconsin is pretty evenly divided, Republicans hold almost two thirds of the state legislature here. 
on the campaign trail, per se, what's called those maps rigged. And so that's where all of this drama starts. Republican lawmakers say that amounts to prejudging any challenges to the maps. And so once progressive lawsuits challenging those maps were filed, those lawmakers began calling for Protosiewicz to recuse. And they said if she doesn't, they will explore impeachment. Impeachment. OK, what's been the response so far to those impeachment threats? It's been huge. The state Democratic Party said it would spend about $4 million to fight those threats. And then we were all surprised when Assembly Speaker Robin Voss proposed a nonpartisan redistricting process that's similar to one that Democrats have been calling for for years and which he himself has rejected. He said he's changed his mind, he listened to voters, and he wants to stop political fighting. Democrats, of course, called this a cynical last-minute ploy. They say the proposal still gives Republicans outsized power. And while that proposal actually did pass the assembly late, late last night, Democratic Governor Tony Evers has called it bogus. So he's probably going to veto it, and the MAPS lawsuits are going to move forward. Okay. All right. That was one vote yesterday. The other vote is this effort to oust the state's top election official. This is all going back to the 2020 election, right? That's right. Megan Wolf is the nonpartisan elections administrator here, and she's become kind of the face of the baseless accusations from Trump supporters who think the election was stolen. Wolf doesn't write election policy. That's actually the role of the bipartisan elections commission that she works with. But because of those accusations, Republicans said they wouldn't support her to a second term, even though they unanimously confirmed her the first time around. So then what was the vote that happened yesterday? Yeah. So fast forward to this summer, Wolf's term in office expired, but she didn't actually step down. A recent state law here suggests that means she can actually stay in the job indefinitely. But Senate Republicans acted as though she had been officially renominated. And yesterday they held a confirmation vote and voted against her. Immediately, Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call filed a lawsuit, and he said basically that that vote has no legal effect. Meanwhile, Wolf is staying in the job. She says the attacks on her are just because 2020 didn't go the way some people hoped it would. The Senate's vote today to remove me is not a referendum on the job I do, but rather a reaction to not achieving the political outcome they desire. Okay, so much drama. So as you're looking at all of these moves by Republicans, I guess, what connections do you see? How are you thinking about all of this? Yeah, what we're seeing is a real shift in political power here in Wisconsin. Republicans have held outsized power for years, but that's starting to decrease as of recent elections. I'm seeing efforts to hold on to power and shape elections going forward. Notably, Wisconsin has very close elections. Presidential races are often decided by less than a percentage point. And also, you know, there's a saying that goes, as goes Wisconsin, so goes the nation. And so holding political power here in the state actually has national stakes. Indeed. That is Wisconsin Public Radio's Anya Van Wagdendonk. Thank you so much, Anya. Thanks for having me. Hollywood actors and writers have been picketing for months now, and there's an ongoing turf war being fought over where exactly strikers can and cannot protest. Dave Blanchard with NPR's Planet Money team explains, and full disclosure, as broadcast journalists, many NPR employees belong to the SAG-AFTRA union, including me, though we are governed by a different contract than actors. Bill Walkoff is a strike captain for the Writers Guild of America. He helps lead the picket line at the Television City studio lot in Los Angeles. How do you tell the difference between a friendly honk and an unfriendly honk? When somebody yells out and shouts at us, get back to work! That's pretty clear. Yeah. 
Some productions at TV City, soap operas like The Young and the Restless and other scripted shows, they're made by companies the WGA is striking against. People who work for these productions have to cross Bill's picket line. But other shows, think game shows or commercials, they're made by companies that the unions aren't striking against. And so employees for those productions can use what's called a neutral gate to get onto the lot. Neutral gates cannot be picketed because those neutral workers... They shouldn't have to physically cross a picket line. Nobody wants to cross a picket line. From the very first day of the strike, Bill had a hunch that the neutral gate at TV City was being abused, that someone was cheating. He remembers watching and thinking... There are really good-looking actor types going through these neutral gates right now. And I found it hard to believe that all of those cars were neutral parties. Bill thought, beautiful people, TV city, they must be soap opera stars who are not allowed to be using the neutral gate. So Bill hatched a plan. We've just got to catch a young and the restless actor going through the neutral gate. If Bill could snare the right good-looking actor type, the writers would be allowed to start picketing the gate, expand the number of places where they could apply pressure on the studio. They just needed someone who really knew soap operas. Then, one day, Bill met someone on the picket line, a Writers Guild member he'd never seen before. This writer told me that she was a former Young and the Restless writer. And I said, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> Sarah B. Bell worked for The Young and the Restless for 13 years, exactly who Bill was looking for. He seemed pleased that I was willing to uh, volunteer to participate. She agreed to take some shifts watching the gate. Days went by, then weeks, and finally one day. Right over here, I saw a uh, white pickup truck. She thought she recognized the truck. It came closer, and then she saw the driver's face. He's a very handsome guy, so he was very recognizable, and I was like, oh my god, there he goes. There's Mark Grossman. Mark Grossman, a.k.a. Adam Newman in The Young and the Restless, was using the neutral gate. Proof that the gate was being abused. Grossman and The Young and the Restless declined to comment for this story, and Television City didn't respond to requests for comment. The day after Sarah ID'd the neutral gate abuser, Bill and the writers began to pick it there. Flipping this gate probably won't be the thing that gets the studios back to the table, but even if it moves the needle just a smidge, then it's a victory to me. Most of the writers picketing in Hollywood don't have a seat at the negotiating table. What they have are picket signs. And now, one more place where they can use them. Dave Blanchard, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Listen again at 5.30 this afternoon for the kind of context you'll only get on 90.9 WBUR. We're exploring the differences between the impeachment actions undertaken under Presidents Nixon, Clinton, Trump, and Biden. Listen again at the end of your day. It'll be mostly cloudy and breezy tonight. The lows around 61 degrees, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers tomorrow. We'll have some gusty winds as Hurricane Lee passes by about 200 miles off the coast. A coastal flood advisory and high surf advisory will be in effect. 
The highs will be around 70 degrees. It'll be sunny and 79 degrees on Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. On last week's Wait, Wait, Amy Dickinson showed how we love to support our celebrity guests as they take our quiz. Dude, you're never going to get this right. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever we might try to throw off this week's special guest, Hillary Rodham Clinton, well, she's had worse. Join us for the news quiz where this week we all will be wearing pantsuits. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. America's unionized auto workers are staging an unprecedented strike at all three major automakers, seeking higher wages in an era of big profits as the industry makes a costly switch from gasoline guzzlers to electric vehicles. By striking simultaneously at GM, Ford, and Stellantis, formerly known as Chrysler, the workers are seeking a 36% pay raise over four years. Writer Little John is a longtime worker at the Ford plant in Buffalo. He says workers aren't being greedy, just asking for what they lost during the downturn in 2007. My family sees the economy. My family have worked for low wages or work for low wages. So our fight is also their fight. They understand that if, if we continue to just grow the top 1%, eventually there will be nothing left for anybody. The strikes are limited right now to three assembly plants in Michigan, Ohio, and Missouri. The UAW president says more plants will be added if the companies don't deliver better contracts. President Biden has authorized FEMA assistance to be available in Maine ahead of Hurricane Lee's landfall tomorrow. From Maine Public Radio, Nick Song has the latest on the storm's potential impact. The National Hurricane Center shows Lee making landfall on the western edge of Nova Scotia Saturday afternoon, with parts of Maine's coast being whipped by tropical storm force winds as soon as late Friday. Cape Cod and other parts of Massachusetts are also under threat, plus areas more inland. Luis Foti, a warning coordination meteorologist for the National Weather Service in Caribou, Maine, says heavy rains should be of concern. If you are in a location that gets isolated during heavy rainfall, like a road gets washed out or something, that may happen. Turn around, don't drown, don't drive through floodwaters. She says those living near coastal areas of the upper northeast should also prepare for power outages caused by fallen trees. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Hurricane Lee will pass east of the Massachusetts coast tonight and early tomorrow. Boston and the inland communities won't be impacted as impacted. Cape Cod and Nantucket could experience beach erosion and possible flooding. Right, right now, WBUR's Miriam Wasser says Cape Codders are taking it all in stride. I'm standing near the beach in Brewster. I'm on the bay side of the Cape where my weather app tells me the wind is blowing at least 15 miles an hour, though sometimes faster. The water is pretty choppy. Um, There's not much to see beyond some seagulls who are cruising on the breeze. I saw a few people walking earlier and one man taking a quick swim, but it's pretty quiet right now. And while the sky is overcast, it's, it's actually pretty light. It's not dark. There's the beginnings of what might be a nice sunset, too. The Cape can expect sustained winds of 30 to 40 miles an hour, with gusts reaching up to 60 miles an hour. As Hurricane Lee approaches, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says that we can expect more of these climate fuel disasters as the world warms. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports. 
This year has been a wild one for extreme weather in Massachusetts. An unexpected freeze decimated fruit crops, torrential rains flooded farms, and this week a downpour in Lemonster opened sinkholes and washed cars off roads. Speaking in Boston today, U.S. Senator Ed Markey said that these disasters should be a call to action. This extreme weather isn't a coincidence. It's the climate crisis announcing its arrival. It's not bad luck. It's years of deliberate obstruction of the changes we need to make. Markey called for more funding for climate resilience and a rapid reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The state's unemployment rate ticked up slightly in August. Last month's jobless rate was 2.6 percent, up a tenth of a percent from July. Still, the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates the state gained 15,400 jobs in August. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Here in the Boston area, it'll be mostly cloudy and breezy tonight. The lows around 61 degrees, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers tomorrow. We'll have some gusty winds as Hurricane Lee passes by about 200 miles off the coast. A coastal flood advisory and high surf advisory will be in effect. The highs around 70 degrees. It's 68 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, where Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy made it official this week. House Republicans launched an impeachment inquiry of President Biden. But how they'll do it, when they'll do it, and most importantly, what the charges are, these things are all still up in the air. While we can state the obvious, this is not the first time in recent history that Congress has pursued impeachment of a president. So, how might this time be different, either in substance or in process? Let's talk it through with NPR political correspondent Susan Davis and senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Welcome to you both. Thank you. All right, I'm going to let you each weigh in on what you see as the same or different from impeachment's past. Sue, kick us off just the foundation here. Is what we have seen so far the standard way to begin such such a serious process? No. And and what's different here is that the core focus of the investigations that Republicans have been conducting to date have really been focused on what the president's son, Hunter Biden, did. Unlike past impeachments, where it was very clear, specific actions by the president that drove these inquiries, 
For Biden, there really isn't one single act I can point you to that Republicans are saying is the rationale for impeachment. What they're saying is, look, there's a lot surrounding his son, his business dealings and his communications with his father, business financial transactions that could implicate the president. So let's investigate this further. So impeachment as investigation. Exactly. Okay. And Speaker McCarthy has already said they're looking at charges of abuse of power, obstruction, corruption. But what actions are that Joe Biden potentially took to build the case for impeachment remains to be seen. Tam, your turn. You've been digging in on how this impeachment compares or doesn't to impeachments past. What have you found? Well, as Sue says, I think the biggest difference here is evidence of actual wrongdoing. Or lack thereof. Right. There is not evidence of actual wrongdoing that they have uncovered and presented to the public yet. With Clinton, there was the Starr report indicating that he lied under oath uh, and also to the American people about his relationship with intern Monica Lewinsky. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Ms. Lewinsky. With Nixon, there had been Senate hearings and a special prosecutor digging in uh, and finding evidence. So uh, by the time that the House voted to formally launch an impeachment inquiry, that vote was overwhelming and it was bipartisan. In the case of Trump's first impeachment, there was a credible whistleblower complaint and public reporting, at least, about a phone call where the president tried to strong arm Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky into launching an investigation Not into Biden. And then for the second impeachment, Tam, inciting an insurrection, so this was all, I mean, to, was all carried live on national TV. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. And we're right. Going it was to on live TV. Give. They didn't even do an inquiry. They went straight to articles of impeachment. Also, because they're in a hurry, he was about to not be president anymore. One other big difference here relates to that. Every other impeachment going back to Andrew Johnson, they were impeached for something they did while they were president. In this case, the accusations that are being thrown around are all related to things that may or may not have happened almost a decade ago. Sue, you cover politics, so let's talk about the politics of all of this. And note that an impeachment inquiry is is a political process. It's not a legal court of law. I want to note something happening here is Speaker McCarthy is moving ahead with this inquiry under significant pressure from the right flank of his party. What do we make of that? You know, one thing I I want to point out here is that I think Republicans often misread history. You know, they point to what Democrats did under President Trump to say they ran towards impeachment and we're doing our impeachment here. Speaker Pelosi did not want to impeach Donald Trump. She spent most of her time telling her base, we're not going to do this. This is bad politics. It's a waste of time. And none of us came here to impeach a president. It was until that phone call happened that changed the fate of impeachment for Donald Trump. Exactly. The difference here is that Speaker McCarthy has been incredibly responsive to the conservative base who has been pushing for impeachment since day one. When he made that announcement this week, it was at the same time that at least one member of his conference was threatening to hold a vote to throw him out. I think it's fair to say that as he navigates this process going forward, he's in a very tenuous position. He is not a strong arm speaker leading the conference there. He is responding to the needs of a base and, frankly, I don't believe the speaker even knows where this ultimately is going to land. Um, Tam, I want to turn you to just the pace of impeachment. It it seems lately we have seen impeachment inquiries like every other year. Do we expect this to happen more often going forward? 
Yeah, historically, there were some long gaps, and now they are very short. And the answer is that we'll probably see more of this. And why? Well, the lesson from the Clinton impeachment was that impeachment is politically risky. House Republicans lost seats in the midterms that year. Speaker Newt Gingrich ended up stepping down. But since then, gerrymandering means that there are fewer and fewer swing seats, fewer members of Congress who have anything to worry about other than their own political base. I talked to Keith Whittington. He's an impeachment expert from Princeton, and he told me the incentives have just shifted. There's just not enough independent voters and swing voters to change that calculation in the way that there were during the Clinton impeachment, for example. I suspect the political incentives now are going to push us toward having more impeachments rather than fewer. And let's just say right now, everyone is fundraising off of this impeachment. One thing I think is important to note here is that House Republicans and Senate Republicans have different motives and constituencies. And it is worth noting that Senate Republicans were pretty tepid to the news this week, some of them outright saying there's not an impeachable case here yet. We'll see what they find. You know, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, as recently as last month, was very publicly saying impeachment should be rare. This is not good for the country to have repeated impeachment problems. And politically, they can be very unpredictable. He survived the 1998 impeachment. He saw that Republicans took losses in the election. And he is a Republican who's looking at the 2024 election saying, look, all things being equal, we could stand to gain in this election. Maybe let's not mess it up with an impeachment process that we can't really control the outcome of. A final question for you both. Sue, you first. Do we 100 percent know this train has left the station? Does this definitely go to articles of impeachment? It seems hard to see how it does not. Once you rub the impeachment lamp, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. And the pressure that House Republicans are going to face from their base, from former President Trump, to find something that's an impeachable act is so great. It's hard to see how this doesn't ultimately land on the floor as some form of impeachment vote. Tam? I don't know what they're ultimately going to do. But what I do know is that Calling it impeachment has given it a whole heck of a lot more attention than this investigation that has been going on this entire year had gotten up until this point. I shall say mainstream attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's gotten plenty of attention in the right wing media environment. But now everybody's talking about impeachment. And that is something that is politically good for the Republican frontrunner who is four times indicted, twice impeached, and now he and his supporters can say, oh, look at Joe Biden. He's not a saint either. He's being investigated as part of an impeachment. And Pierre Sue Davis and Tamara Keith, thanks to you both. You're, You're welcome. welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. About 50,000 AI enthusiasts descended on San Francisco this week. They talked about AI for business, AI for retail, AI for everything. The extravaganza included everything from game shows to the biggest names in the industry. NPR tech correspondent Derek Kerr was there. Downtown San Francisco was transformed. The streets were cleared and laid with bright green astroturf. Tall leafy trees were brought in and even a fake waterfall was assembled. There's pop-up cafes, lounge areas, music, but the real scene stealer, artificial intelligence. Welcome to the biggest AI event of the year. Welcome to Dreamforce. 
Hollywood star Matthew McConaughey opened Dreamforce, which is hosted by the software company Salesforce. It's an annual promo event that's normally like a company trade show. But this year, it's all about AI, the technology that's exploding in popularity and anyone with a smartphone can play with. Now it seems AI is working its way into every facet of our lives. And I flew all the way from Brisbane to attend this. That's Chavi Gore, who's a business analyst at Queensland University of Technology. She's interested in how AI is trained. The way they collect data and how they are breaking the data boundaries, it's pretty exciting to learn about that. AI enthusiasm is everywhere here. Signs say things like peace, love, and AI. In the conference hall, there's kale salads, mochi donuts, and an MC inviting people to play around with Salesforce's AI tool, Einstein. I don't know if you guys know, but this space is all about Einstein. And we have a really cool game show happening called Do You Want to Be an Einstein? Panels include topics like AI revolution and calling AI heroes. The technology even came up when California Governor Gavin Newsom spoke with Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff. Yeah, I'm glad people applauded about San Francisco. We've been in this little doom loop for too long, so I, I appreciate a little positivity. Man. Well, we've moved from a doom loop to an AI boom loop. Some speakers at the event warned about unleashing the technology too quickly. AI ethicists on one panel all agreed it's important to be aware of the risks. Stanford professor Rob Reich said that can be hard with such a new field. AI ML people are like 19-year-olds. They're newly aware of their great power in the world, but their frontal cortex is massively undeveloped and they're socially irresponsible. One of those on the forefront of this new AI era is Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, which created ChatGPT. On stage, he was asked to name the scariest thing he's seen with AI, given the technology's potential to impersonate, make things up, and just generally go off the rails. Honestly, nothing's super scary yet. We know it'll come. We won't be surprised when it does. Soon, Altman left for Washington, D.C., where lawmakers are hashing out ways to put guardrails on the fast-growing industry. That came up at Dreamforce, too, including in Matthew McConaughey's welcome video. Because if AI is the Wild West... Who's the sheriff around here? In the convention hall, it seems like no one wants to be the sheriff. Instead, people are busy taking selfies with placards that say, AI, Captain. Derek Kerr, NPR News, San Francisco. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 68 degrees in Boston at 549. As the UAW kicks off the first day of a historic and unusual strike, the union is holding a rally in Detroit. Bernie Sanders will speak and we'll take you there after 6 o'clock on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, presenting the world premiere of Lunar Eclipse, starring Karen Allen and Reed Burney. Now through October 22nd. Tickets at Shakespeare.org. Mostly cloudy and breezy tonight, a low of 61. Mostly cloudy with a chance of showers tomorrow. We'll have some gusty winds as Hurricane Lee passes by about 200 miles off the coast. 
Coastal flood advisory and high surf advisory will be in effect the high is 70. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com And the Boston Globe's Globe Summit 2023. Today's innovators, tomorrow's leaders. Virtually or in person at WBUR's City Space, September 19th through 21st. The third annual event features speakers Rain Wilson, Devin McCourty, Alex Cora, Keith Lockhart, and more. Open to the public. Registration at globe.com slash summit. As the first inoculators who were dealing with smallpox in the early 1700s uh, discovered... Historian Simon Sharma. It's a very counterintuitive thing to stick what you know is a bit of poison inside your own perfectly healthy body. And yet, we should. Pandemics, vaccines, and all the latest news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Meme stocks are getting the Hollywood treatment. The new movie, Dumb Money, is about the GameStop craze in 2021 when amateur traders banded together on the social media site Reddit to give professional investors a run for their money. As NPR's David Gurr reports, the meme stock phenomenon lives on. It's a remarkable David and Goliath story that played out in the middle of the pandemic. When Wall Street rigged the system. Stupidest people on earth. Some money, man. Happy to take it. These ordinary people risked it all. GameStop. Two and a half years ago, the video game retailer GameStop was floundering. And hedge funds were betting it would continue to flounder when members of this finance-focused Reddit community called Wall Street Bets decided to do something about it. They piled into GameStop stock. They drove up its price. And that made it very painful for those professional investors who wagered it would tank. Sean Kumar says he considers that frenzied period a defining moment in his life. It was a very stressful but a very exciting time. It was also a unique time, which led many pundits to suggest the GameStop craze would be a one-off. People were stuck at home during a global pandemic with time on their hands. Kumar was a college student waiting for his final semester to start online. He'd followed the Wall Street Bets message board since high school, and the uptick in chatter about GameStop caught his attention. He bought video games there when he was a kid. I made a mental note that, okay, I should keep an eye on this and think more about what could happen here. What motivated Kumar and other amateur traders was this sense that maybe the power dynamic was changing between Wall Street and -and mom-and-pop investors. It was also an opportunity, albeit a high-risk opportunity, to make a lot of money. I knew that it would be something that it would burn twice as bright, but it would burn twice as hot as well. Among the millions of us watching this play out was Albert Choi. He's a professor of corporate and securities law at the University of Michigan. I mean, I thought that at that point in time, back in 2021, I thought that this was just another fluke. That it was just another bubble, artificially inflated by demand. But then it started to spread to other stocks, to Bed Bath & Beyond, to BlackBerry and AMC, and more recently to regional banks, exacerbating the turmoil in that sector. None of it makes much sense, and traders have faced some painful losses. Tupperware has been another target. It's been struggling. And the trucking company Yellow became a meme stock when it was on the brink of bankruptcy. I think um, we'll be experiencing a lot more of these episodes going forward. 
Choi is not surprised we're still seeing new meme stocks. Trading is easier than ever, and we've all seen the power of social media. But he's mystified by what companies attract attention on Reddit and other sites. There's going to be, I think, uh, inherent uncertainty about which ones are going to be the next meme stock companies. And although there was speculation back in 2021 this phenomenon could change the investment landscape, that hasn't happened, according to Elizabeth DeFontenay. She teaches corporate finance at Duke Law. One reason is Wall Street has gotten a lot smarter about fighting back. Well, ironically, lots of hedge funds are trying to see if they can uh, write algorithms that predict which company will be the next meme stock. (laughs) So the hedge funds will actually benefit from the meme stock movement in the long run. And there's not the same level of interest we saw in the early days, the same excitement. The lockdowns are over and there's more to do. There's also more to spend money on. For Sean Kumar, the reward was worth the risk. He says he made about $35,000 off his GameStop investments. But after that, he decided to stop trading meme stocks. I walked away completely. Uh, I sort of knew that this kind of hype trade, this kind of sort of frenzy was very much a, you get lucky, I think. Kumar doesn't follow Wall Street bets anymore. Now he works for a financial services firm. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Often when we tell stories about animals, it's about how badly they're doing, which was the case for green sea turtles on the West Coast not all that long ago. But a very different story is playing out right now just south of Los Angeles here, where those turtles are coming back in a major way, right in the middle of suburbia in the San Gabriel River. Jacob Margolis from LAist has this story. Given how the San Gabriel River looks, it's tough to imagine that it's hosting what's likely one of the largest gatherings of sea turtles in Southern California. I mean, there's people speeding by on the 605 freeway. There's a suitcase floating by. And you've got to go down these huge concrete embankments just to get to the water. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's really wet. Uh, <laughs> but when you do, sure enough, within no time at all, gliding just beneath the murky surface. There we go, green sea turtle! <laughs> this is amazing. Green sea turtles like this one are often born on a beach about 1,600 miles away in Michoacan, Mexico, where masses of these turtles pop out of their shells all at once and start scurrying towards the water. The vast majority of those animals are not the lucky ones. Jeffrey Semenoff is a turtle researcher with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They'll get picked off by ghost crabs or raccoons or birds or fish. They just don't make it. You know, less than one in a hundred hatchlings typically make it to adulthood. There are different populations of green sea turtles around the world, and many of them are either endangered or threatened, often due to habitat loss, ship strikes, and accidentally getting caught by fishermen. The green sea turtles here in Southern California were listed under the Endangered Species Act in the 1970s. Their population was cratering, in part because they and their eggs were being harvested on their nesting beaches in Mexico. But by the early 90s, Mexico had taken new steps to protect them. And in the past five years, their population has exploded here. It really does sort of distill down to the fact that if we don't eat them and we protect their nesting beaches, they're going to do quite fine. Helping struggling animals isn't always that straightforward. But unlike other species of turtles, the green turtles near L.A. tend to live closer to the coast, reducing the risk of accidental bycatch and ship strikes. And with their numbers growing, they're expanding into new spots. 20 years ago, to talk about turtles up in Orange County was unheard of. Now it's pretty much a common sight, whether it's in Seal Beach National Wildlife Refuge or Bolsa Chica or in San Gabriel River. Tina Fey, NOAA's West Coast Sea Turtle Recovery Coordinator, 
took me to a spot in the river where the vegetation ends and the giant concrete walls begin. I think it's only recently that we've really realize that green sea turtles are coming this far up the river. Scientists have been surprised to see this many of them here. It's something that they still need to study to better understand, but they think that this highly developed area might be kind of a strange sort of turtle oasis. There's lots of algae to eat, the concrete walls seem to keep the water warm, and... An area like this that is relatively quiet other than the freeway noise, um, that doesn't have vessels, that doesn't have people with hooks and line, um, is actually a really good protected area. And as their population expands and waters warm due to climate change, the turtles could keep going further north, giving scientists an opportunity to study these resilient animals in totally new habitats. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Margolis in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from 20th Century Studios presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, now playing only in theaters. From Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness, with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And the half-god of rainfall at ART. Women and goddesses rise up against Zeus in this modern-day myth. Two weeks only, now playing. AMREP.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As the UAW kicks off the first day of a historic and unusual strike, the union is holding a rally in Detroit. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders will be speaking. It's Friday, September 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on the auto workers' strike. UAW members walked off the job at three factories. Also ahead, in addition to the physical obstacles of getting help to survivors of Morocco's earthquake, there are also problems with government dysfunction. And the Bay State braces for a brush with Hurricane Lee. We feel we're prepared across the Commonwealth. We certainly hope, uh, hope for the best, but we always have to prepare for the worst. We'll have the latest forecast. The Red Sox are in Toronto tonight to take on the Blue Jays. It's 6.01. 
News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Around 13,000 union auto workers at plants in Missouri, Ohio, and Michigan are on strike today against the big three U.S. automakers. As NPR's Daniel Kay reports, the United Auto Workers Union expects to be back at the bargaining table tomorrow. More of the union's nearly 150,000 members could walk off the job at a moment's notice, a so-called stand-up strike strategy that's meant to keep the automakers on their toes. Negotiators for the UAW and the three companies, Ford, General Motors and Stellantis, have so far failed to reach agreement. Workers say they're fighting in part to make up for years of stagnant wages. UAW President Sean Fain has been rallying with workers on the picket line since midnight. Fain says all three companies received a, quote, comprehensive counteroffer from the union. Talks are set to resume on Saturday. On this day one of the strike, President Biden voiced support for UAW, saying carmakers' profits haven't been shared fairly with workers. Danielle Kay, NPR News. A county jury in northern Michigan has acquitted three men accused of aiding in the failed 2020 plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Interlocking Public Radio's Michael Livingston has more. After the verdict declaring all three men not guilty was read, sighs of relief came from the men and their families. Eric Molitor and brothers William and Michael Null were accused of providing material support to an act of terrorism and faced a felony firearm charge. Outside the courthouse, Molitor says he plans to remain politically active. I don't hate my government and I don't hate police. Um, that's, and I'm not a liar. The prosecution team would not comment on the outcome, but a statement from the Whitmer chief of staff said the verdict will, quote, further encourage and embolden radical extremists. For NPR News, I'm Michael Livingston in Bel Air, Michigan. The leaders of the world's developing nations are meeting in Cuba. NPR's Ader Peralta reports among the topics of discussion is the U.S. embargo against Cuba. The group known as the G77 plus China are meeting in Havana. The president of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel, said countries from the global south make up a majority globally, and those countries bear the brunt of the world's problems, from hunger to poverty to displacement. It's time, he said, that developing nations have more say in world affairs. The South, he says, can no longer bear the dead weight of misery. The summit is happening at a time when Cuba is going through its worst economic crisis in decades. The group of nations gathered here is expected to denounce U.S. sanctions against the island. Ada Peralta, NPR News. Havana. Stocks closed lower today on Wall Street, pushing the broad market to its second straight losing week. The Dow fell 288 points. The Nasdaq was down 217 points. The S&P 500 dropped 54 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Cape Cod and the islands are getting ready for Hurricane Lee. The storm is on track to pass by New England during high tide later this evening. WBUR's Beth Healy is in Provincetown, where residents are cautiously optimistic. The wind is definitely kicking up here this afternoon in Provincetown. There are still a lot of tourists milling around Commercial Street, enjoying the afternoon. There are sandbags piled up outside one side of Town Hall in case the water should come rushing down the street, which people are predicting it won't. The town has piled very large heaps of sand outside many of the harbor beach exits, and there are a few stores boarding up their windows. But people still seem pretty hopeful that it won't be too bad here. The Cape can expect sustained winds of 30 to 40 miles per hour with gusts reaching up to 60 miles an hour. 
National Weather Meteor National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Latham says this will be a fast-moving storm. The brunt of the impacts are going to be felt late tonight into tomorrow morning. And then for, because of the tides, probably even for, for the afternoon tomorrow. But things are going to be winding down fairly quickly. Um, that's kind of the fortunate thing with the system is once it gets up, they're usually moving at a pretty good clip. Public safety leaders are urging residents to be vigilant. Barnesville County Emergency Preparedness Specialist Chip Riley is urging people not to take chances. Tomorrow's not a great day to go look at the big waves. Stay home, stay safe, let the first responders be available for other emergencies or other instances. We want to reduce our need as much as possible and keep everybody in a safe and comfortable place. Governor Healy today declared a state of emergency to help respond to any damage. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox says a year into the job, one of his main priorities is community outreach. Cox tells Radio Boston he is analyzing crime statistics to direct resources to people living in neighborhoods that are seeing the most crime. And then more importantly, get their input on what they think we should be prioritizing so we can address particularly the, the, the issues around fear of crime and so become more of a partner with our residents. Cox says Boston's crime rate has been declining and he wants to change the perception that crime is high in the city. It'll be mostly cloudy and breezy tonight. The lows around 61 degrees, mostly cloudy. Chance of showers tomorrow, the highs around 70. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The United Auto Workers are rallying in Detroit today to mark the start of historic and unusual strikes. The union is striking against all three major automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, but only at one plant per company. Right now, thousands of workers are striking, which is less than 10 percent of all unionized workers at the big three. But that number could grow. NPR's Camila Dominoski joins us now from the rally site. Hey, Camila. Hi, Elsa. So I know that you've been out on the picket lines today meeting with a lot of workers. What are you hearing from them? Yeah, you know, a lot of people have talked about the sense that they are making history, right? The first time the UAW has struck all three of these companies at the same time. That brings with it some excitement, but also, you know, it's a strike. There's fear. There are concerns about the economic toll it takes on a family to not have income for a while. And, you know, I should note, really broad consensus among workers out on the picket lines that the companies can afford to make better offers than they're, than they're making now. But, you know, one other thing that struck me when I was talking to people today is that while nationally I think there's been a lot of focus on the wage demands in these talks and things like cost of living, which are really important in these talks, to be, to be clear, a lot of the workers who I spoke with who were, who were striking themselves, they focused more on things that have not been so much in the national headlines. Oh, interesting. Things like what? Things like how long it takes for a new worker to reach maximum pay levels and things like retirement health care benefits. I met one worker named Eric Mullins. Here's one thing that he said to me. They need to give some guys like me health care after we retire. I, I'm third generation. My grandfather started here and I couldn't tell you when. And my dad's been here since 95. So he's, he's got almost 30 years in here. And his insurance is far greater than mine. And is he retired? No, nope, still here. But when he retires, what's he going to get? 
Oh, he'll still have insurance. Absolutely, he'll still he'll still get everything. He'll get a pension, all his benefits. We get nothing. So that's the kind of stuff that's got in. Wow. So that worker's looking back at what the union used to give to people like his dad, and that's what he wants for his generation too. Uh, how realistic is that, Camila? Well, that question that you just asked is really at the heart of these strikes, right? Because the union is saying, under new leadership, Sean Fain, he's saying we can ask for more than we thought we could under previous leaders. They're trying to get back things that they gave up before, especially things that they gave up in 2007 and 2009, in order to help the automakers through what was really a financial crisis. And from the workers' perspective, they're saying, you know, it worked. You're doing great now. Your profits are huge. Everybody mentions the size of company profits to me. And now it's your turn to give that back to us. Okay, your side of the deal. On the other side of the table, sources at automakers have told me that retirement health care, specifically that benefit that Mullins was talking about, that that is a non-starter for them because mm. of that same history. You know, they look back, they say that a big part of what pushed two of the big three into bankruptcy was their financial obligations to retirees, and they don't want to go back to that. So both sides are looking at this history, and it's taking them in completely opposite directions, which is why we now have this, this strike situation. So interesting. Okay, well, what's next after this rally? Hard act to follow. The crowd loved Bernie Sanders' speech, and we're right across the street from a black tie event at the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, there's going to be a negotiations are going to resume between the automakers and the union, and we'll see what happens. That is NPR's Camila Dominoski in Detroit. Thank you so much, Camila. Thank you. The governor of Maine has declared a state of emergency as Hurricane Lee approaches the state. Much of Maine is under a tropical storm warning, and Lee is expected to bring high seas, heavy rain, and strong winds. We're joined now by Maine public reporter Caitlin Bedian, who is in Bar Harbor. Hey there. Hi, thanks for having me. How are things looking in Bar Harbor today? Well, strangely enough, it has been a beautiful day here in Bar Harbor. The sun has been out for most of the day with clear skies, but it has been unusually quiet for the town. Hmm. Uh, to compare, when I was here in June, I was came in on a cold and rainy Monday morning and the town was still packed. So to see it this empty on such a nice day really speaks to the storm and the concerns about that. You know, there are cruise ships that were supposed to dock here this weekend that canceled. Uh, looking out at the water, you can see that a lot of people have taken their boats out of the water. Uh, and even the few tourists that are here, I spoke with some folks at the visitor center in town who said that people have come there with concerns about if there will be flooding or impacts from the storm. Well, and I know from friends who live in Maine and who have <laughs> complained all summer that it has been a, there's been a lot of rainy and cold days in Maine this year. Is that adding to concerns about possible flooding this weekend? Definitely. There have been several storms over the summer that caused flooding in different parts of Maine, and that has really resulted in very saturated ground that can't take a lot more water. Here in Bar Harbor, though, they're more concerned about the wind. The concern is that with the combination of the saturated ground and the high winds from the storm, it will make it a lot easier to knock trees over and then in turn knock down power lines. Uh, the fire chief here in Bar Harbor said there's only a few areas that are likely to flood, so he's really focused on the trees. So what's the official guidance? What are people uh, being told to do to prepare? 
Much of it is the same advice that has been given for other storms, you know, to stay inside and prepare for power outages. Utilities here in Maine have been preparing with extra crews to respond to outages. Uh, and the fire chief here in Bar Harbor spoke to coordinating with his staff and creating checklists for each day, mostly telling people to really stay away from downed power lines and trees and to just be patient while officials work to respond to all the damage. While they clean up from whatever is coming. Real quick before I let you go, um, I, I want to ask about one other place because I know you're near Acadia National Park. What do preparations there look like? Yeah, so the park has gone ahead and closed campgrounds uh, to make sure that nobody is staying out overnight uh, with the storm coming in. And then certain areas where it's lower elevation, where there are concerns about flooding, have been closed as well. But like everybody else, they're kind of waiting to assess the damage afterwards. That is Maine Public's Caitlin Badian reporting today from Bar Harbor. Thanks so much. Thanks again for having me. It's not just physical obstacles that are getting in the way of help to earthquake survivors in Morocco. The Moroccan government has been criticized for mishandling the response. But Moroccans in the quake zone insist that they stand behind their king. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. There are traffic jams on the tiny roads high in the Atlas Mountains as rescue teams, aid trucks, and cars full of journalists try to squeeze by each other on hairpin curves. Dutch rescue volunteer Saad Atia says their sniffer dogs are trained to find survivors, so every minute counts. When we arrived on Sunday, I thought we can reach the government, but the government that was not really welcoming us. They say, yeah, you, you should get approval from the embassy, or you go to Rabat, Minister of Foreign Affairs. Yeah, so that means just... Uh, Go away. We don't need you. So they joined other volunteer rescue teams, but he says they lost a day. The Moroccan government has approved aid from only four countries, despite many more offers of help. Unlike in Turkey's recent quake, where Atya also worked, there have been next to no survivors pulled from the rubble in Morocco. To be fair, that's also largely due to the traditional adobe houses in Berber villages. The mud brick insulates well from cold and heat, says Mirad Sassani, a professor of structural engineering at Northeastern University, but it collapses easily in quakes. When it crushes, it becomes like powder and soil would fill everywhere. Leaving no shelter spaces or air pockets, he says. When you arrive at a destroyed village, it mostly looks like a giant heap of rocks and earth. Mission impossible to find life. Despite the overwhelming needs, on Thursday, the German Red Cross said it was forced to cancel a plane of humanitarian aid due to an abrupt change in Moroccan regulations. And French offers of help were ignored from the beginning. Morocco's king, Mohammed VI, is said to have frosty relations with President Emmanuel Macron, whether real or imagined, the incident created diplomatic tensions that Macron tried to calm in a video to the Moroccan people this week. I want to tell Moroccans directly that France was devastated by this terrible earthquake, he said. We are ready to provide humanitarian aid, but we await your green light. The message completely backfired, infuriating Moroccans. The country's powerful and frequently absent king was reportedly in his multi-million dollar Paris apartment when the quake struck. He returned to Morocco later the next day. Former Moroccan journalist Aboubakar Jamai now teaches international relations in France. He says reaction to the earthquake is proof that Morocco is not a democracy under King Mohammed VI. 
and he remained in the out of the country for 19 hours and during these 19 hours it's as if morocco didn't have a government and worse didn't have almost a state because there was no communication between any official with the rest of the population world leaders expressed their condolences their support to morocco and not one moroccan politician voiced anything something toward the moroccans media here is restricted and it's hard to find moroccans ready to criticize their monarch but most seem sincere in their support. Mountain villagers amid the destruction even yelled out to us, long live the king. In a town at the base of the Atlas Mountains, men are unloading trucks coming from around the country filled with mattresses, tents, and blankets for the remote villages. On every truck is a picture of the Moroccan king. 23-year-old volunteer Amin Zairi bristles at criticism of his government's response to the disaster. We don't need help from any other country, especially not France, he says, adding, long live the king. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, MZ's Morocco. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Thanks so much for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Just ahead, marking one year since the death of a 22-year-old Iranian woman who died in police custody after allegedly wearing her headscarf incorrectly. On Wall Street, stocks were down today. The Dow fell eight-tenths of a percent to close at 34,618. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ also both fell more than one and a quarter percent. Marketplace will have all the day's business news coming up at 6.30 on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. Now featuring Hunter Douglas shades for light and glare control and hard-to-reach windows. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo Route 9 Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says coastal communities will get the biggest impacts from Hurricane Lee with battering waves, beach erosion, rip currents, and minor coastal flooding. That'll come midnight tonight into midday tomorrow. The bay side of Cape Cod and Nantucket likely to see the worst of the coastal issues with the water piling up. The wind will ramp up tonight and peak wind is expected after midnight until late morning tomorrow. Gusts 50 to 60 miles per hour on Cape Cod and the islands and isolated gusts to 70 there. Along the remainder of the coast, gusts 40 to 45. No wind concerns inland. Isolated to scattered pockets of wind damage and outages will result. Now for the rain, outer tropical bands will pivot into the Cape tonight, continuing off and on through late morning tomorrow. And then it's showery after that. Otherwise, a few brief downpours elsewhere, no big flooding concerns. Danielle Noyes tells us that Sunday will be sunny and in the 70s. Should be nice on Monday and Tuesday as well. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston at 620. WBUR supporters include Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at freshcitykitchen.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Iran, authorities are setting
setting up new checkpoints, deliberately slowing the country's already slow internet, and detaining people, people they suspect may be planning to join protests this weekend. Those protests would mark one year since the death of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman who died in police custody, having been arrested reportedly for not wearing her headscarf correctly. It sparked outrage, the biggest anti-regime protests that country had seen in years. But the crackdown was as brutal as it was predictable. Iran's security forces beat protesters. Hundreds were killed, thousands arrested. And by the time my team and I landed in Tehran this past February, the protests had largely been quelled. Still, as we walked the streets of Tehran, we saw quite a few women out and about with their hair uncovered, defying the mandatory dress code. Here's a mother and daughter we stopped on the sidewalk. You're not wearing hijab. Is that new? Did you wear one before the protest? Yes, before. I use it, but right now, no. When did you take it off? Do you remember? Maybe three or four months ago, after the death of Masa Amini. After the death of Masa Amini. Well, I want to bring in Golnaz Esfandiari. She's an Iranian-born journalist who covers Iran from outside the country for Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Golnaz, great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. What do we know about how tense it is right now in Iran? What are you hearing on this eve of the anniversary? So what we're seeing is um, an intensified repression. The establishment is uh, cracking down on activists and others. The family members of those killed uh, in the brutal state crackdown have been harassed. Uh, They've been uh, pressured to remain silent. Uh, about 20 of them have been detained, uh, including um, the, the family of Mahsa Amini has come under immense pressure. A rights group today reported that uh, around 300 people have been arrested in the past two months. And so, so what we're seeing is, you know, a regime that is uh, increasingly afraid of its own people. Huh. What you're describing... Sounds as though, if anything, the regime has been emboldened, is cracking down more than it was uh, a year ago. Is that right? Yeah, the the regime has become uh, even more repressive. Uh, But, you know, the actions we're seeing are not the actions of a confident regime on the contrary they're 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 terrified of the people they're terrified of the of the women especially uh, and and they they see that despite all the measures they've been taking despite all the people that were killed in the crackdown over 500 people including children the people's defiance is far from over before we move on have the leaders of Iran offered any concessions, any meaningful concessions in response to these protests? You know, the worldview of Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, is that you you should not um, show any weakness and concessions in his view is showing weakness to the population. What they did is that after uh, Mahsa Amini's death in custody, um, there were no more morality patrols in the streets. So that was a small concessions. And then later, um, there was this amnesty. Um, They announced an amnesty, I think, for thousands of people who were arrested in the crackdown. 
But later on, we saw that some of those people who were amnestied were sent back to prison or the government kept pressuring them and harassing them, including journalists. As we speak, uh, two journalists who broke Massa Amini's story, they're still in jail for a year just for reporting uh, about her death and uh, about her funeral. So what do we know of what life looks like now for women in Iran? You know, I, I, from the reports we're receiving, uh, women have become uh, braver, um, they're bolder. They're still, despite, you know, um, the warnings by officials and uh, other attempts to force them to wear the hijab, there are still many women who are coming to the streets without a headscarf. Now, some of them tell us, you know, I have a headscarf in my bag in case it's needed. But they're just defying. And, and I was speaking to this woman and, and she told me, this is the least I can do in reaction to what happened in this country. I personally think that something broke during the recent protests and especially the crackdown. And it, it, I, I believe it was a turning point and nothing, it's not going to go back to things that were not going to go back to the way they were. Say more about that when you say something broke. What do you mean? 70, about 70 children were killed. How can people forget that? Uh, how can people forget the, the level of cruelty we saw from this regime in the streets of uh, Tehran and other cities? That's what I mean by something broken. I don't think uh, people can go back to the way they were. The gap between the people and the establishment, and it, it's, it was already a huge gap. It has widened. The government or the establishment is not willing and it cannot uh, address the grievances people have. What will you be watching for tomorrow on the actual anniversary as you try to assess what the state of dissent is in Iran? Well, I don't expect a major protest because of the crackdown, because of the security measures uh, authorities have been taking in the past days and months and weeks. But we will be watching if, you know, we receive any videos um, from inside the country of people protesting. Uh, I will be also definitely reading what the state media are reporting uh, to find out between the lines what's happening. But we have, we have lots of people who, despite the pressure they face, they still send us information from inside the country. So we'll be looking at those and see... Uh, and try to find out what's happening inside the country. That's interesting, though, because it sounds like what you're saying is even if we do not see mass protests uh, this weekend, that does not mean the anti-government anger is gone. It's just Absolutely gone not. beneath Absol the surface. Absolutely not. There's, there's fire under the ashes. Uh, people are very much angry about what happened, and there's also a lot of frustration because of the poor state of the economy that is crushed by sanctions, but as well as years of mismanagement, people feel they're taken hostage by, you know, by the policies of this, this regime. And they're just fed up. You know, Iranians, as you know yourself, you've been there. Um, they're very much connected. They're, they know exactly what's happening in the world, especially the young people. And they're aware of the rights they're being denied of under this establishment. 
Golnaz Asfandiari is the managing editor for Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty's Persian service. We reached her today in Prague. Golnaz, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. The Red Sox are in Toronto tonight to take on the Blue Jays. It'll be mostly cloudy and breezy tonight. The lows will be around 61 degrees, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers tomorrow. And we'll have some gusty winds as Hurricane Lee passes by about 200 miles off the coast. A coastal flood advisory and high surf advisory will be in effect. The highs will be around 70 degrees. It'll be a nice day on Sunday, sunny and 79 degrees. Partly sunny with a chance of some showers on Monday, the high around 73. It's 67 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, where college-age students and high school grads can experience a unique mixture of friendship, deep personal growth, and fun. Improve confidence while gaining concrete academic and life skills and practicing healthy habits. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com.